the student asks, um, how much shock can a, can a patient take? And the professor uh, said, uh, well, how much, uh, how much does a patient want to live? And that's kind of like what I felt. You know, it's like, I want to live. Uh, if, you know, if I have to lose the limb, then so be it. Um, I've lost toes before as well. Um, and the same thing, it's like, well, if you know, if you have to amputate, then you have to amputate, but I'm going to keep on living. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Lafiro A. Gomez III who became a full-time writer after suffering a massive stroke. He attended Williams College and has studied chemistry, art, psychology, philosophy, and creative writing. He's a quadriplegic who writes mainly on his iPhone using his thumb. Parachute Island is his first novel, and he currently resides in San Antonio, Texas. Welcome, Lafiro. Thank you for having me on your uh, podcast. I really appreciate that. I'm really happy that you're here, and I was so excited that we connected, and I'm really excited to talk about your writing and your life and how you, you're doing. Um, you're kind of in an interesting situation, especially because you live with your parents, and I imagine um, that was not something you could have foreseen years ago that you'd be living with your parents. No, not at all. I mean, uh, this is, came out of the blue. Um, I... Uh, was living in Austin at the time, and uh, I was living with a, a housemate, Ben Ben Davis, and um, it was late at night, lit about eleven at night, and I uh, had gone to bed already, and I started to feel ill. I just felt kind of odd, it's like uh, my head was swirling, and I felt like I was going to vomit, and so uh, I, I decided to, to get up out of bed. And I I got up out of bed, and then all of a sudden I just crumbled to the floor like I couldn't stand or anything. And uh, my phone fell out of place, so I couldn't reach it. Um, and I felt like I couldn't move my left arm at all either. Um, mm -hmm. So I fell uh, face down onto the carpet. And uh, Ben was watching the movie downstairs, and uh, he couldn't hear me because of that. I had a... Uh, 701 surround sound system. So uh, <laughs> we tend to crank it up when we watch movies or play games. So he didn't hear me because I, I fell. And I, when I tried to call his, my, his name, I couldn't get his name on right. It just uh, every other word came out other than his name. And so mm. you know, I remember one time I said, Ben, I said, friend, instead of Ben. Mm. Uh, and it was, I was just like, uh, I, I kind of laughed about it because it was weird being in that situation. I, mm -hmm. I, I kind of felt like what people feel like when they're drunk, but I didn't, mm, yeah. you know, I didn't drink. <laughs> so, mm. um, I was there face down and I thought to myself, I've got to do something. I've got to call out, call out to him when he comes up upstairs, um, because if not, I'm going to pass out and I'm going to suffocate on the carpet. So mm. finally I, I mustered out Ben and he came out through the door and he saw me lying on the floor and he called the, uh, an ambulance. Uh, and the last thing I remember is them picking him up, picking me up 
uh, bringing me downstairs into the ambulance. And I was running, they're rushing me in through to the ER. And I, uh, I passed out after that. Hmm. Do you have a sense how long you were on the floor trying to figure out how to help yourself? Uh, probably like about 30 minutes. Um, it wasn't wow, too long. that's a really long time. Yeah, it wasn't too long before he went, came up to bed. Uh, so luckily he, he was on his way up to his room. He, uh, heard me yell out to him and, and heard me and came through the door. So. Mm-hmm. And so you came to understand that you'd had a stroke, right? Correct. Um, I was out for two weeks and the doctors, uh, weren't, told my parents that, uh, they didn't know I was going to make it. Um, it was just mm. a, such a massive stroke. Um, mm. and, uh, it, it was just, uh, you know, nobody knew about it. The doctors, uh, thought at first that I was on, on drugs or something. And then they finally found the stroke that caused the problem. And it was a vascular malformation that I'd had since birth. And, uh, it just so happened, it's just, you know, that, that night I decided to act up, flare up. So does that mean that, you know, for people who don't, including myself, I know a little bit about stroke, but it's still an area I don't understand a ton about. Does that mean that there was something um, in your in your brain that wasn't formed the way it could have been and that it was sort of like waiting to it was just a matter of time? Yeah, it, it was just, a, you know, a ticking time bomb. And it was just a matter of when is it going to explode? Mm hmm. And. Prior to this, I mean, when you, how old were you when you when this happened? I was thirty five. Mm-hmm. And so, prior to this, what was your relationship like to your body and health and just you know feeling like how much did you take yourself for granted, like so many of us do? Uh, I uh, I wasn't very good about my health. Um, I had diabetes. I had blood, high blood pressure. Um, mm-hmm. when I was younger, I had uh, petite mal epilepsy mm-hmm. and, uh, I don't know that that was an indicator of what, what, what was come. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, I really wasn't taking good care of myself. I should have been taking, eating better and taking better care of myself overall, but I didn't, and maybe that agitated, the uh, agitated mm-hmm. the, uh, the stroke. Mm-hmm. It's also kind of a catch-22, though, because, I mean, you never would have known you even had this malformation had you not had the stroke. So, what you know, is there even any way to have avoided it? I don't think so. I mean, without, you know, knowing. You know, back then, they didn't do uh, MRIs on, you know, infants and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah. why, there was no way of knowing that that was going to happen. Right. I mean, I feel like I've heard stories, a handful of stories in terms of the heart and heart malformations that no one even knew about and murmurs or valve problems that don't show up until someone's an adult and there's a terrible, uh, a terrible accident or a loss. And then people realize, oh, this person had this malformation. Right. Right. I mean, until something happens, it's hard to even know. Um, so so when you're you were in the hospital I'm wondering how conscious you were the first couple of like when you when you came to and you were aware of your surroundings, what what did you understand at that point? I didn't really understand a lot because my, my mind was still kind of healing. So mm. um, I could um, hear people saying talking about stuff, but I didn't understand the words that they were saying. Uh, like mm. I remember um, 
my father talking to uh, my my manager at one point, and they to me they were talking about uh, forming a pact between werewolves and vampires, and I <laughs> I kept telling my dad, no, don't do it, dad. <laughs> yeah, like, well, I kept trying to say that, of course, you know, to them, all they heard was, you know, gibberish. So yeah. uh, my mind was so healing. It was so trying to understand words. It was trying to form words, but uh, it uh, they weren't coming out quite yet. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like you had your dad there. And did you have any other family visiting you? I had my mom. Uh, mm-hmm. Both my parents were there. It was just a really hazy Felt um, it felt weird at certain points. I felt like I was in an out of out of body experience. Um, sure. And uh, which is weird because I never thought, you know, how well, how do you feel, you know, what do you feel like when you get an out of body experience? Well, now I f- now I understand what that feels like. Yeah, yeah. Um. So do you? Is it? You know, I've had two children. I remember after the second one. I don't know if it was a migraine type of related or stress induced something, but I I've had in my life and not anything like what you've experienced, but I've had minor times when I floated above because of pain or some type of, you know, ocular migraine and migraines or some type of tension. And I, I kind of understand that loss of ability to it's happened to me where words came out of my mouth that weren't what I meant. Right. And I have just these, I've had, even when I was 16, I had my hand go numb and I wasn't able to speak and I had a giant headache, you know, so I've had a similar idea to what you've had, but nowhere near as serious. And I know for me, it was really disconcerting and it was um, scary. And it's a very strange experience to not be able to control what it is that you're trying to say. Right, exactly. Uh, and even, you know, even now, you know, even during this interview here, you know, um, I want uh, certain words to come out and they don't exactly come out the way they want them to, to come out or mm-hmm. as uh, to flow as, as well as they should. Mm. For me, they sound great. Oh, <laughs> I'm not I'm not aware of that, but I, I understand if it's not, you know, how you want to to explain it or to express yourself. Um, do, you, do you so you have siblings? No, I'm an only child. You're, uh-huh. And so were you and your parents close knit before? Before your stroke? Oh, yes. Uh, I'm close, you know, very close to my parents. I have an aunt and two uncles that I'm close to as well. And uh, Mm -hmm. we all live on a ranch. Um, There weren't any neighbors around uh, when we first moved out here. So I I was pretty much all all by myself. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of what led me to uh, to books a lot. You know, um, at the age of two, I was starting to read books I remember going to a grocery store. My mom would go get groceries, and me and my dad would be at the magazine aisle, and we'd be, you know, he'd be reading the magazine. I'd get a magazine and thumb through it, and he'd tell me, you know, don't tear the, don't tear the pages. You know, be very <laughs> careful. And so I'd stay there, you know, just looking at the, at the at the pictures, and eventually, you know, the letters and the images kind of like melded together. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, by the, by, I'd say around the age of six, I started to write. Um, I, uh, I I feel like uh, we can know we know how to write before we know how to read, because mm-hmm. even though we you know as children we scribble, we know what that means. You know, we we mm-hmm. understand what that uh, you know to an adult looks like a scribble, but to to a child 
it uh, it tells a story in the forms of words and uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, explores worlds and it's just amazing to, to a child. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think we we know how to write before we read um, mm-hmm. and to express ourselves to try to communicate something exactly. Yeah. What was your job when you, before you got sick, before you had the stroke? I, I know you went to Williams College, but what were you doing for a career? I was working for the IRS. Um, I was a tax examining technician. Were, were you writing on the side when you were working? I was. I was um, writing when I got a chance to. And uh, I play uh, Dungeons & Dragons. Mm-hmm. So I was playing that and, you know, dungeon doing a, being a dungeon master at the same time mm-hmm. so i kept my my uh, nights full mm-hmm. with, between that and writing mm-hmm. yeah and so so you find yourself in this this hospital room and people are visiting you and did the doctors seem to understand after a little bit what the situation and prognosis was they did um eventually they um saw that I was, my mind was starting to heal. So they sent me to a, um, a hospital here in San Antonio. And uh, then they sent me to a rehab facility called Warm Springs. And uh, they uh, provided physical, uh, occupational, and speech therapy um, just because I was still recovering from the stroke. Mm-hmm. And uh, I quickly came out of speech, mainly due to my dad, mm. Um, because I had a, a nurse that would um, feed me, and she would say, okay, open your mouth, chew, swallow. Okay, open your mouth, let me see, let me see, did you eat? And she would do that for each and every bite, and it would frustrate me to no <laughs> end. And so finally, my dad said, you know what, I'll go and do this. Let me go and let, him, let me feed him. So what he would do is, um, me and my dad would always play trivia. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, especially music trivia. So, so um, you know, he'd, he'd ask me a question and then um, I'd chew the food and I'd say, you know, it's the Beatles or <laughs> it's uh, Led Zeppelin or whatever. And I said, OK, now he, then he would say, OK, and now I know that he, you know, he swallowed his food. He didn't choke or anything. Mm-hmm. So I can get him to his next bite. Mm-hmm. I don't have to keep, you know, asking me. Asking him if he swallowed and to open his mouth and any of that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I know he he did a lot for me as far as for my speech therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to the it got to the point where though the insurance no longer wanted to pay for therapy, even though I was making strides and I was getting close to standing, mm, wow. starting to walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and they started to place me in various nursing homes until they ultimately decided to uh, send me home even though I wasn't ready. Mm. And at that point, I began to become, began to become really, uh, really uh, depressed mm-hmm. uh, because I was just at home. I was just lying in bed and um, I would get into my chair, but um, it just uh, wasn't, I wasn't getting the therapy that I needed. Mm-hmm. Did you have anyone advocating for you or was there any, was there any way around that or was it like the insurance was out and if you can't pay out of pocket, you just are out of luck? Pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, uh, I had, uh, I was back on the Medicare at some point 
And so I was able to get uh, therapy at home. At home. Um, but uh, it, it wasn't quite the same kind of therapy that I was getting at Warm Springs. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, they, they were really pushing me. Mm-hmm. And here at home, well, they could only do like an hour's worth of uh, therapy. Right. And it's not something your mom and dad specialize in. It's not their right. forte, right? Um, Correct. What was the mood in the house? I mean, how did there's so many things I'm curious about, like. And, you know, feel free to answer any of these if you want is, you know, you say that you began to feel depressed and what is it like to come home and and be there in this new set of circumstances? Uh, It was kind of depressing at first. I mean, it was just like, what am I going to do now? You know, uh, how am I going to get up, get out? How am I going to get to work? Um I'm a, you know, I had a home at, at the time, a house, uh, a job, a, a car. I ended up selling all of that, getting, you know, stopped, I'd stop working, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just like, it was very depressing because it wasn't, I wasn't used to not working or doing something. Yeah. So just being around, lying around in bed or in my wheelchair, uh it just wasn't the same for me. Can what were your symptoms at this point? What was your bodily control like? What what was the impact of the stroke on your body? Um, my uh, left leg was pretty much shot. Um, I, I really couldn't do anything with my left leg. I could move my left arm a little bit, um, uh, but again, it, it had lost uh, a lot of nerve damage from the stroke. Um, the right leg, uh, was doing all right. You know, I was able to stand up on it for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was with a little bit more therapy. I, I could have gotten to the point where I could have, uh, walked around on crutches or, um, maybe hopefully gotten more, uh, functionality out of my left leg. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, unfortunately, um, after, Maybe a year, so I would say, I developed a, an ulcer that, that developed to gangrene and to septic shock. Mm. And it was uh, such a large ulcer that I could fit, they say that, that they could have fit their uh, fist into mm. it. And um, so um, I went to the hospital again. Again, I passed out, uh, went to the ER, uh, and again, they, they didn't know I was going to make it or not. Mm. Um, and I was in a heavy, uh, morphine induced hallucinatory state. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I felt like I was in an out of body experience or an alternate universe. Uh, it, it was just weird. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I was raised Catholic mm-hmm. and, and then I switched over to being, um, an atheist because I believed so much in science. Mm-hmm. And then after having those two experiences, I feel like neither religion or science can really um, give me enough uh, give me enough an explanation as to what goes goes on beyond that. Hmm. No, I feel like there's something else out there, but I just can't put my finger on Interesting. it. Interesting. Yeah. So your your ulcer. Do you know was that? I'm wondering about that. Was that caused by? Um, medicines you were taking or is there a reason why the ulcer got so bad and so big i think um i think it was because i'm supposed to have turn every like every couple of hours mm-hmm. 
and I wasn't doing that. Mm. So um, it uh, it just it had a, like a flash flesh eating bacteria, mm. and uh, it just you know grew out of proportion because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so how long were you in the hospital at that point? Uh, to be honest, I don't even know it. Like I said, I, I was in such a in a, such a heavy and morphine induced state that uh, I don't know, but it was at least two or three months. Mm, wow. Yeah, I, I had to go into some um, major surgery and um, had to use all kinds of antibiotics mm-hmm. to try to kill the, the bacteria. And that ended up killing um, killing my, my kidneys mm. because of all the antibiotics. Mm-hmm. So on top of that, I had to uh, go to dialysis three times a week, mm. and it was very difficult. I mean, that it is hard on your body. Mm-hmm. Um, you go f- four hours into dialysis, and basically, what it does is it is it pumps all the blood out of your system, cleans it, and then pumps it back in. Um, and, and it's a really cold state, mm-hmm. so um, your, your body really feels it. Um, you tend to be feel exhausted, uh, feel nauseated. Um, uh, you can vomit. Uh, some people have had cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we we've learned a lot over these five years mm-hmm. about dialysis. Um, my my mom or my dad will come with me, and and so um, I would go to dialysis. And finally, they sent me home, and um, my mom would end up having to take care of my, uh, like, bathing me and taking care of my bodily functions mm-hmm. and eating and nursing needs because I'm uh, I'm left-handed, and that's a side that's got uh, paralyzed. Mm-hmm. So try to do everything with your right, you know, your opposite uh, dominant hand mm-hmm. is uh, is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're right I'm or left-handed. I'm a lefty. I'm a lefty, yeah. Okay, so, you know, you know how, how what it's like to try to do stuff with your right hand, and, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't come out the right same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of, um, I feel like you have had a lot of obstacles, and I didn't realize you were still on dialysis. I guess when you say your kidneys are shot, I mean, they're shot, they don't really come back. Correct, mm-hmm. unless I get, a, like, a, a kidney transplant. Yeah, so what's what's it like with mom taking care of you and, you know, being in the house with them. I mean, have you guys, do you have sort of a system or sort of a routine now? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we definitely have a routine. Um, like I said, my mom, uh, she knows how to um, uh, do all my hygienic stuff yeah. and uh, f- feed me and, or my dad will feed me. Uh, and uh, she'll take care of my bodily functions. I have a, what's called a colostomy bag, mm-hmm. which, you know, basically you know, it's a bag for your poop mm-hmm. uh, or there's a, a urine bag and she knows how to empty it, all of that. Um, uh, or uh, if I need to, you know, bathe or pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I need to get turned or anything, my dad will do that. He's stronger of the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he'll know, he'll know how to like lift my legs or turn me over and without hurting me or anything like that. So mm-hmm. uh, together, they, they make a really good team. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, you're lucky to have yeah. them. And I'm sure I'm sure that um, 
no one expected life to turn out this way, but have you, where are you in terms of acceptance or, you know, frustration about the way your day-to-day is now? Um, I've kind of, kind of just go with the flow kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, one, one year I had, uh, an infection that went down to the bone on my right leg. And so it got amputated. Mm -hmm. And I remember the uh, doctor coming in looking very, um, forlorn and, um, like he didn't know how to bring it up. And so finally he said, you know, we're going to have to amputate your leg. My parents are shocked. They were shocked. Mm -hmm. And um, didn't know how to exactly take that. And so I was just, you know, I just told him, you know, well, you got to do what you got to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of this uh, this short story by uh, Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And the opening, uh, it goes, uh, there's, it's about a medical student brings up his hand in front of a uh, class and uh, asking a question to the professor. And, and the student asks, um, how much shock can a, can a patient take? And the professor uh, said, uh, well, how much, uh, how much does a patient want to live? Mm. And that's kind of like what I felt. You know, it's like, I want to live. Uh, if, you know, if I have to lose a limb, then so be it. Um, I've lost toes before as well. Um, and the same thing. It's like, well, if you, know, if you have to amputate, then you have to amputate. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to keep on living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, is your outlook different than it was five years ago about life? Oh, definitely. Um, for a while there, for the longest time after I came back and I had everything amputated, I uh, I was just despondent about everything, was depressed. Uh, I would, you know, take all, the me- all these meds mm-hmm. and I would sleep all day and then I would sleep all night. And th- that's all I was do, would do was just... Uh, sleep and or just wake up just to eat and that that's about it mm. um so finally i had several family members tell me you know maybe you should get back into writing you really loved writing and so i thought well no i can't do that because the only thing i can do is do it on my phone it it's so difficult to see mm. and it you know i i just made all these different excuses mm-hmm. and so finally i thought to myself you know what i've got to try at least mm-hmm. Um, so what I ended up doing was I changed the, the font on Word on my iPhone. And so I could see it better uh, and read it better. And uh, I could go back and make my changes and everything else. And I finally thought, okay, finally I know how I can write. Mm-hmm. So um, I've uh, been writing ever since. Uh, it's been about two years now. Mm-hmm. Um with my thumb on my my phone. Hmm. It takes a lot of work. Yes. Yeah. But it, it's worth it. I I enjoy it. I've always loved writing. What does it make you feel like? What does writing make you feel? It, um, even before the stroke, I always got a chance to be, I mean, writing always gave me the chance to be able to uh, go into different worlds and um, step away from the real world. I've I've always felt like, I should be living in the world of fiction and not reality. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it, it gives me that chance to be able to get in there. Even when I read, it does the same thing. It does it, the same thing as it is what reading is for a lot of people. Um, writing is for me. Only I'm in I'm in control mm-hmm. of what goes on 
or the storyline or the characters or whatever. Yeah. Yes. It's an escape and it's also sort of uh, control. Correct. Yeah. What are you, what are you working on right now or what are you writing next? Um, well, I uh, wrote Parachute Island. That was my first book. And it's about children who've uh, died and gone to the, uh, gone to this island in the afterlife where they can uh, have any wish filled. Mm-hmm. And they go to this island simply because they don't have any relatives in the afterlife to take care of them. Mm-hmm. So they get to go, to go to this island and, you know, they uh, get the, this, their, any wish they want granted by this wishing tree. And uh, there's one sole uh, adult on the island who's the caretaker. And um, she, he is there to... Um, Eventually, he finds a way to grant the, one of the protagonists a uh, wish. Mm-hmm. And uh, I won't go into too much detail to, so that I won't give too much about it away. But um, it's, uh, I, I've been told that it's very touching. It's very emotional. Um, it's about uh, tears to a lot of, you know, everybody's, ta- everybody's eyes, um, uh, men and women. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was surprised that, you know, a lot of people really liked this, <laughs> like, like that book. Um, the second book that I've written that just came out in November is called The, uh, the Valiants. And it's a heavy fantasy, sword and sorcery kind of um, book. Um, it's, uh, it's about four college students who mourn the death of another and they're left with a serious package for them to open. Mm-hmm. When you have an idea for writing, and I know it can uh, kind of consume a writer. I mean, I'm, I'm a writer too. And this idea that you have to get it on the page. So how would you do that? When, like, What did you do when you had so many ideas tumbling over themselves um, and you had to get it down? How did you kind of s- keep on writing and try to hold on to those ideas? Um, I had the hardest time back when I was younger. I would come up with a whole mess of ideas and I would write them down on paper and, and then I would start writing, you know, you know, a story to one idea. And then all of a sudden I come with this other idea and I said, Oh, I got to write this down. <laughs> and so now what I've done is, um, I'm, I have a compilation of all these ideas set that I'm going to write. Um, and I'm just trying very hard to focus on, uh, one storyline and, you know, it's and it's so much easier to do it with a novel I found than mm-hmm. it is with a short a short story. A short story you focus on the plot, and not so much characters. Mm-hmm. But with the uh, with the novel, you focus more on the characters than the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, you really develop them, and so the, you 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 become um, you become almost one in one with them. You know, they're like mm-hmm. become like your best friends. Uh, yeah. during that during the whole journey and so uh when it's over it's kind of like oh, that's it nothing yeah. else <laughs> <laughs> until the next one right right exactly yeah so so you know it's been five years since the stroke is that right um six actually oh it's been six years okay yeah. how do you think you're doing you know from from when it first occurred and this big change in your life happened to now you know what would you say about yourself i'm i would definitely say i'm doing a lot better um Mm -hmm. my my health is not perfect 
um, but I have a more positive outlook on it. Um, mm-hmm. Writing has definitely helped. Um, I, like I said, I've always loved writing. It's uh, It's been a fellow brother or sister to me, uh, mm-hmm. this world of fiction. And mm-hmm. uh, so it coming back, coming back home and, and help me get out of this uh, doldrums uh, has definitely helped. Um, my uh, my parents, my family have seen an, a definite outlook, different different outlook on me. Mm-hmm. Um, they can tell that um, um, I'm really passionate about doing something again. And mm-hmm. sometimes they even have to tell me. You know what? You need to stop writing because you're you, know, you get tired. You look sleepy. You're tired. Take a nap. <laughs> like no, I got to keep going. I got to keep going. Yeah, it's really good. It's good yeah. for the soul, isn't it? Oh yeah, definitely. Is there anything that you want people to know? You know about your experience or your life, or is there anything that you you wish people could understand? Um, definitely, don't give up. Nothing is impossible. Um, you know, when I when I first got into this situation, I thought I'll, I'll never be able to write again. I'll never be able to enjoy uh, going to the movies or anything like that. And, and no, that's not true. Um, you you make your future what you make of it. Um, and uh, you know, I hold true that nothing is impossible. You just have to really uh, be firm in your belief about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I, I want to just circle back to before we we tell listeners where to find you, uh, circle back on religion and science. So these days, you know, you were raised Catholic and then you kind of um, I think you said, were you an atheist after that? An atheist after that because of my uh, strong belief in science. And so where are you now? Uh, agnostic. Um, mm-hmm. There are some things that religion can explain. But science does. And then there's some things that science can't explain, but religion does. So it's kind of like there, there's something in the middle between them, the, between the two, that uh, holds the answers. But I just don't know what that is yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of captivating. It's yeah. really interesting that you've been to those different parts of belief and faith and, you know, understanding um, so, so where can listeners find your work or, you know, uh, how can they find your books and more out about you? Um, they can go to, uh, they can find me through amazon.com and they mm-hmm. can just look up my name, Lafiro Gomez, L-A-F-I-R-O Gomez. Um, mm-hmm. they can look me up that way. They can go to, uh, imaginaryfactorycreations.com, all one, all one word. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm on uh, Facebook and I'm also on uh, Twitter. Okay, great. Under that handle? Uh, the handle is at, for Twitter is um, Lafito A. Gomez Third, mm-hmm. 111, um, or II. And then on uh, Facebook, it's Imaginary Factory Creations. Okay, great. And I'll link in the social media posts and on the website for the podcast, all of those so people can find you. Okay, great. Um, yeah. So, Lefero, 
I, you know, I'm really happy that we got the chance to talk and I'm going to check out your books. I'm excited about that because I don't write in the fantasy genre, but I'm interested and I can see how Dungeons and Dragons probably informed that type of fantasy mind growing up, or maybe you were already into the fantastical and that's why you went into Dungeons and Dragons. A little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. I never played my, myself, but um, I know it's extremely popular. So it's been around for a while and I know people just love it. Oh yeah. Um, I have uh, two nieces who, who uh, got into it, you know, when they were young. And so um, one of them was in high school and she got into D&D. And, and so now I'm, I'm proud uncle, like, <laughs> yes, he's, you know, just taking on my ne- my nerdy genes. <laughs> right. Um, thank you so much for, for being with me uh, for this interview and for, you know, sharing some of your life with me and the listeners. I really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening. 